The big story this morning is this whistleblower report. And, Chris, you talked about this in Colleen's newscast. I've, I've been reading the original post, and uh, this quote leapt out at me. The, uh, the whistleblower writes, Because there are so many problems with the Spirit build in the 737, and Spirit is the, the, uh, the company that builds the fuselage, because there's so many problems, Spirit has teams on site in Renton performing warranty work for all of their shoddy quality. So uh, even though apparently Boeing is solely responsible for this, what, what this guy is claiming is that they, they get fuselages with so many defects that they are simply stretched too thin to that, catch and, them all. And that's not relatively – that's not – unheard of over the last couple of years from Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita. Boeing has said the same thing has been happening with its 787s produced in South Carolina originally, and they had to go back to Everett to be reworked. Uh, This whistleblower goes on to say, in the last year alone, there have been 392 non-conforming findings around the door plugs. Just in the last year. Now, each one of those findings represents it could be one one bolt is one non-fight. So on mm-hmm. one door plug, the four uh, could be multiple. So it's but that's you know kind of stark that uh, they're getting a shoddy product according to this whistleblower from them. They're doing the rework, and then the other issue really appears to be that there are multiple systems checking. Like okay, day shift comes in, and here's your maintenance log, Dave. Here's what you need to do on this airplane today. Well, there's another system that's supposed to kind of look at that as well and tracks it separately, and then no one really signs off on whether that work got done during your day shift while it was passed on to second shift and then on to third shift. And so it really doesn't – it sounds like they really don't know what work is actually being done. And because of one system not reporting what the other is doing, an inspector never got to inspect the door plug before they returned the plane to Alaska. According to this whistleblower report, and that's again uh, in in this whistleblower. I mean, right off the beginning, what's this whistleblower say? Goes all the way back to the culture change at McDonnell Douglas. Right. And we've heard this for Yet decades again. now. Right. Is that the culture became bottom line, bottom line, bottom line shareholder versus. Quality, quality, quality. Not to say that most people who are doing the work in there don't want to build a quality, incredible airplane, which they do in most, but it seems like well, the there's... The fish rots from the head, right? And, if the edict is we need profits, we need to get these out fast, then what can you do? Your hands are tied when your boss is demanding that. Or the systems don't catch it. So yeah. this is very, uh, very scathing, uh, to say the least. But the thing is, this this guy apparently has access to Boeing's records. Here's the way he, he begins his post. He says, current Boeing employee... Here I will save you waiting two years for the NTSB report to come out and give it to you for free. The reason the door blew off is stated in black and white in Boeing's own records. It is also very, very stupid and speaks volumes about the quality culture at certain portions of the business. So this was in the records. And yeah. nobody noticed it. Well, that and again, it, it's like the paperwork that comes in from shift to shift. Yeah. It's signed off on or not signed off on or or done. So, uh, yeah, he implies it, this is a direct result of speeding up the line. Doesn't but, he? Exactly. Which yeah. people have been saying for years as they got up to what, 49 a month, uh, 737s. Uh, and so and that's not to be said that this can't be mean because Airbus builds the, the, the Neo, the 320, as fast as Boeing had ramped up its production. It's trying to get up to 75 a month. But somehow it there, there appears to be potentially more oversight there or things like that or, or multiple systems. Yeah, it's this is dumbfounding to me. Yeah. Land acknowledgement. 
of the Duwamish tribe. The Duwamish leader, Chief Seattle, passed away in 1866, but his image remains a constant presence. More than 150 years later, thanks to a single photograph he sat for not long before he died. Our resident historian Felix Spinell went in search of the story of that photograph and what it means to one of the chief's descendants. You know, that was Ken Workman we heard at the top there doing his uh, unique twist on a land acknowledgement as part of one of those Macklemore concerts last month at Climate Pledge Arena. Ken is the great, 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 great grandson of Chief Seattle. We'll hear more from him in a moment. Now, several Facebook posts lately from these different kind of, I don't know, Native American history sites have been posting misidentified photos of Chief Seattle. And this kind of inspired me to look more into this photograph. Now, you probably know that one and only photograph was taken in 1865 by a photographer named Edward Samus at his studio in Seattle, upstairs from a drugstore on Yesler Way, just east of what's now First Avenue. That much is agreed upon by most local historians. But how the photo came to be is a little more murky. The first published account was in a book published in 1895 by an author named Joseph Costello. The book title is a derogatory term for indigenous people, the Siwash or the Sawash. That story says the photo came about only after a protracted negotiation with Chief Seattle refusing again and again and finally having to be essentially tricked into having his picture taken. Now, Carolyn Marr is a historian, author, and former Mohai librarian and photo curator. She did a ton of research about that Chief Seattle photo back in the 1980s, and part of that research involved examining a copy of Costello's book at the UW Special Collections. Now, it turns out that a Seattle historian of the 19th and 20th century, who's one of the more credible documenters of that era, a guy named Clarence Bagley, he also, at some point in the distant past, had had that very same copy of Costello's book in his possession. We know this because Carolyn Marr made a pretty amazing discovery. Clarence Bagley left a note inside of that copy of the Siwash, which he discounts that whole story. And, <laughs> and he says that Seattle agreed to be photographed when Samus invited him. So it is controversial. We don't know in which context the photograph was taken, but we do know that there was only ever one photograph taken of him. Now, in that one and only photograph, Chief Seattle is dressed in simple clothes, and he's uh, seated in Samus's studio. He's obviously very old, close to 80, it's believed. He's also holding a traditional cedar hat. His eyes are nearly closed. Um, now, Samus wasn't trying to document history. Photos of indigenous people were really marketable back east at that point, so he printed 100 copies to ship off to sell to New York. And over the decades, others copied that photo. There's some terrible versions where Chief Seattle has his open eyes actually painted on. I don't know if you've, know if you've seen those before. They're just no. they're, uh, they're awful. Now, thanks to Paul Dorpat, a great friend of the show, a friend of mine, we know where that photograph was taken. On the second floor of a wooden building on Yesler Way, that building is long gone. In its place, the Merchant's Cafe is there now in a building dating back to 1889. Now, I met up with Ken Workman outside the Merchant's Cafe in the rain the other day. He was wearing a woven cedar hat, just like the one his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Chief Seattle, is holding in that old photo. This is a working hat. If you see how you can see through it. In the summertime, the wind blows through there, so I'm sweating profusely, like in a canoe journey. It's like a refrigerator. And in the wintertime like this, the wood swells up, and it becomes waterproof. And if you think of this as a living thing, because it's a tree, then the DNA of the people are in the tree. So in a sense, I'm carrying around all of my ancestors and what are they doing? Keeping my head dry. And even without that hat, Ken Workman bears a striking resemblance to his great-great-great-great-grandfather. Now, what's even more important to him than the photo is that DNA he was talking about. He says the DNA of the Duwamish is everywhere in what's now downtown Seattle. 
Even the timber used in those pioneer square buildings from the 1890s, those trees were probably 200 years when they were cut down. That dates way back to the time before any Europeans had set foot around here. I am talking about in these buildings, in the buildings that are here today, you and I are standing here, are the ancient DNA of the people. So we're talking, you know, I don't talk about, you know, squirrels and frogs and all that other DNA, because we all know that that's in there too. But at a technical level, the DNA of the Duwamish people exists right here in downtown Seattle. They're still around. And while we're standing on the sidewalk, two women came out of Merchant's Cafe to see what we were up to. You know, it always looks suspicious when you're holding a microphone talking to people yeah. think you're some big famous <laughs> reporter or historian or something. But no, it's just me. Um, and one was Darcy Hansen. She owns the cafe and the old apartments upstairs that are now Airbnb units. She knew all about the photo of Chief Seattle. She let us come upstairs to see the second floor to try to get a sense of what Edward Samus's photo studio might have felt like there up above the street. Hadn't anticipated that. Now, again, the wooden building where Samus had a studio above a drugstore is long gone. The chief Seattle photo was taken in 1865. Merchant's Cafe building was built in 1889. <clears throat> so it was pretty odd to be talking about something that happened at a specific spot in downtown Seattle. And even a building from 1889 doesn't qualify as being old enough to have been there when the thing happened. Um, so we went upstairs. Ken Workman looked around, and Darcy Hansen pointed out some of the old fixtures in the, uh, in the, in the current space. And I'm looking at this, this building, and I'm going, oh, yeah, tall ceilings, so these had to be um, oil lamp, lanterns in here. Yeah, so if you, you know look, the building's old enough for those. Stuff, I'll show you, like a lot of stuff in here is original. Like, see the poles on the, like, this type of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's like original. A lot of this in all these apartments. A lot of ghosts. <laughs> yeah, these walls can talk. So that notion of ghosts or even just history in the past, that's the most interesting part of the story, I think. Ken Workman says Duwamish beliefs were that after you die, your soul goes into an underworld where it remains until your living descendants have completely forgotten about you. Only at that point, generations later, can you be reborn. So naming the city after Seattle, taking his photograph, building statues, creating a city seal, talking about him on a radio show, that's all very European, very Western school of thought. But in this culture, it's the opposite. You're trying to forget that person as fast as you can to re-enable them to come back in a descendant. So by Seattle saying that, yes, you can do all this, his name would have perpetuated forever and ever, and he would never had the chance to come back. That is the sacrifice that he made. Which is, is just so wow. crazy and so like contrary to what everything we think that. about in Incredible. this culture. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So um, the, the name of the city is keeping him from returning. Yeah, and Chief, see, that's that's well documented that Chief Seattle said at the time, don't yeah. name the city because everyone, you, everyone, every time someone says the name, it'll disturb my ghost. And that's essentially, yeah. that's Ken Workman explaining what that really means. Now, David Berge did a book called Chief Seattle and the Town that Took His Name a few years ago, which goes into detail about a lot of stuff. Fabulous read. If you haven't read it, one of the best histories ever written about the city. But, now I feel um, like we have to change the name of the show. It feels rude to constantly say this is Seattle. <laughs> oh, this is Seattle. Morning Seattle. I didn't even think about that. It's Seattle's Morning News. Phoenix? You're right. I'm, I have to apologize. Yeah, anyway, um, but so. it's the other thing about this story, this is also recent. I mean, 1866 when Chief Seattle died. That's yeah. just like, it's like yesterday. I mean, other, a lot of big cities around the world, you talk about the founding of it 2,000 years ago, you know, with London or whatever, or Rome. Here, it's just, we're, it's so new. It's just like, we're just all just recent arrivals. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. But right now, let's get an update on the latest in the Middle East, where we are hearing reports that Israeli troops have encircled the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus amidst the advancements. There continue to be proposals for a ceasefire between the two sides in the war. And for the Jerusalem perspective, I spoke with correspondent with the Jewish news syndicate, Judy Lash-Balin, 
who told me that she is not optimistic that any talks would lead to real progress unless Israel's hostages are released by Hamas. From Israel's point of view, you know, the, 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 the deal has to be the release of all the hostages. And if you think about it, you know, the hostages are the only thing that Hamas has going at the moment. Um, and they're using it. I mean, it's, it's such a cynical and, and horrible uh, uh, thing when you think about it, you know, that they're holding normal people, ordinary people, you know, people that they, they, they dragged off, you know, on October 7th. Um, this is who they're, uh, this is how they're negotiating. Uh, that's what a terrorist group does. So if, if there is, in fact, you know, a ceasefire, they're talking about a two-month ceasefire. Well, you know, two-month ceasefire, which is exactly what Hamas wants, you know, would mean that obviously they're going to revamp and obviously no Israeli politician is, is going to agree to that ultimately on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, you know, the, the pressure from the families of the uh, hostages and uh, the, the threat to those people, of course, is, uh, is very great. So it's a very, very difficult situation when you're trying to negotiate with, uh, with, with terrorists. Right. And that's why I was surprised to hear the report, because even from looking at it from Hamas's point of view, presumably after the ceasefire, Israel's not going to leave Gaza until Hamas is annihilated, correct? Right. Although apparently, again, and, I, and I'm reading probably the same news you are, which is not from Israeli sources at all. Um, apparently, uh, one of the conditions was that uh, the Sinwar, you know, uh, uh, go to some foreign country. And then we're talking about Yaha Sinwar, who is the uh, leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But I think what, what people need to remember and, and uh, what hasn't been mentioned even here, really, in Israel so much is that, you know, Sinwar himself was actually released from an Israeli prison uh, in 2011 in a prisoner exchange. He was in prison. He had a four, um, four life sentences for murdering uh, 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 two Israeli uh, soldiers and Palestinian collaborators who he thought, you know, were collaborating with the Israeli authorities. So this is a guy, you know, he himself, he spent years, decades in Israeli prisons. He speaks perfect Hebrew. He understands the Israeli mentality. And he understands that the overriding desire on the part of the Israeli public and the Israeli government, I mean, it's, it's a cultural thing, obviously, is to get its people back. Um, and it's psychological warfare. The whole thing is psychological warfare. And if they got all, they're asking for the release of Palestinian prisoners. Again, it's not going to happen. You know, these, these are people who some of the prisoners that they're asking for are the people that Israel arrested uh, after October 7th. So it would be insane, really, when you think about it, yeah. um, you know, for Israel to do that. Judy Lash Balin with the Jewish News Syndicate in Jerusalem. I wanted to take a moment to remember a broadcast legend. Charles Osgood, who did the Osgood file on CBS radio for years and anchored CBS Sunday morning on television, died yesterday at the age of 91. And for me, this is more than the death of a famous person, because for 25 years I was his fill-in host on CBS radio, 1992, until he retired in 2017. I'd actually met him a lot earlier when I did a sit-in at uh, WCBS in uh, in New York as a uh, geeky teenager. He was doing anchor duties back then. And years later, when I started my talk show here at Cairo uh, and was doing song parodies, I sent him one, and he used it on the air. And then I noticed that when he was on vacation, his substitutes would just fill the slot with straight news. You know, none of the humor, none of the poetry, poetry or anything. So I boldly wrote the network and said, how about letting me be the fill-in? And I don't know whether it was Charlie or his producer who made the decision, but they said yes. And so I started filling in, which led to my own commentary on CBS Radio, which ran for 27 years. So last night I went through the archives and found this clip from 
April of 1992. I spent a week with our show in uh, in New York City. We were interviewing Broadway stars, soap opera stars, CBS stars, Leslie Stahl, Mike Wallace, Dan, rather Charles Carroll, and of course, this segment with Charles Osgood. Cairo Midday from New York City. This is Dave Ross. Welcome to you all, and welcome to Charles Osgood and crew who are here with us in the CBS studio. Charles Osgood, his producer, Phil Chen, and his writer, Harry Poloshin. Now, wait, who gets into work first in this crew? Uh, Harry. I am. You can tell by my eyes. First well, this is a far-flung enterprise, I have to tell you, because what's happening is that uh, Phil is out on Long Island. Harry is in Queens. Uh, Phil does what he does by computer. Meanwhile, I'm very hard at work uh, stacking Z's <laughs> in my bed in New Jersey. <laughs> so when you get in, when Charlie, when you get into work in the morning, what do they have for you ready on your desk or in well, your computer? When I get in, Phil isn't in yet. He's uh, he's en route from uh, from Long Island. I thought he started first, though. Uh, this is this is one of those things. You know, the making of an Osgood file is a little bit like the making of sausage or uh, certain kinds of cheese. Meatloaf. You don't want to meatloaf. You don't want to look too closely at, at the process, <laughs> or you would never you would never eat any of it. But uh, Harry at, Harry usually has not written anything. It's mostly been a sort of a, a, a selection process up to that point. Then we take a look, Harry and I. And we decide on something that I will go to work on and something else that Harry will go to work on at about 4.30 in the morning. Okay, Harry, you're a writer. Charlie's a writer. What makes Charles Osgood a good writer? Keeping in mind, of course, that he's right here and he's your boss. <laughs> <laughs> you notice how quiet it's got. <laughs> I'll tell you this. This is a formula that he gives to all new writers and everybody else. Simplicity. Uh, reading a lot of stories and uh, uh, and uh, digesting them in your brain and uh, and reworking them as simply as possible, simple declarative sentences and uh, clarity and simplicity. That's you know, and that's what he tries to imbue, and that's what I try to do. And what I think is simple and clear sometimes is very muddled when he looks at it, and uh, when he when his process starts again, he'll change it. See, people think that Harry's a terrific writer because he can write the way I talk. But the fact is that I'm the one who's terrific because I can talk the way he writes. <laughs> that's, that's what's more difficult. <laughs> now, when it comes to writing the, um, the rhymes... Rhymes are Osgood's monopoly. I have an agreement uh, with, with everybody that nobody else has to take responsibility for these. It's sort of like uh, uh, what you have to do is plead uh, guilty. You know, someone says, did you, did you write that? You say, yeah, yeah guilty. <laughs> Phil, you and me come into this corner where Charlie can't hear us. Is there any time where he's been really stuck for a rhyme and he said, Phil, bail me out on this one? Well, he doesn't say bail me out. He says, help! And then we, we, we get in there. We, we, and it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a scene because the newsroom then sees a couple of people huddled over this computer trying to say moon, June, two, blue, and it's, it's quite a... It, actually, it's, it's, it's a, a group process. Everyone contributes. And one that is certainly beneath the dignity of any self-respecting newsman. <laughs> so you got a couple of harmonicas there on the desk. Who plays harmonica in the room? It's not you, Phil. No, it's not me. It's not you, Harry? I'm innocent. Well, I'm, you, you could also argue that I don't play harmonica. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that I have two harmonicas yes. here. I, what I was doing today with, the, with one of the pieces about uh, the tax blues, as I, I called it on, on the Osgood file, was to, to try to play a little blues. So I used one of these sort of simple harmonicas that doesn't have sharps and flats on it. Mm -hmm. I'm not in Seattle. That you very well know. So then you may wonder, how come I'm on the Dave Ross show? 
Charles R. is good from 1992. We, uh, we went to lunch during that trip. He had one piece of advice. He says, the great thing about this job is that you always have another chance to get it right tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. So uh, during the commentary today, uh, we will uh, turn it over to uh, him. We did actually a, a joint singing commentary as part of that broadcast back uh, in 92. And you'll get to hear that again for the first time in, what, 31, 32 years. That's incredible. I'm sorry you lost your friend, yeah. but I'm so happy he had an impact on you, and yeah. I'm positive you had an impact on him. We'll see about that. <laughs> As we heard, we're getting uh, a lot of rain. We have the possibility of atmospheric rivers in the coming weeks, the danger of flooding, etc. So we called up Jeff Jackson, who's in charge of FEMA's flood insurance program, to uh, ask him how you can prepare. Uh, for example, for people who are in the market to buy a home, can you find out what the flood risk is in the area where you are making your purchase? An agent is a great resource. Uh, certainly when you go uh, on some of the, the housing websites now or you look at listings, uh, I know when I bought a home recently, that they'll often have commercially uh, uh, commercial products that give you a flood risk score. That's a good place to look. Uh, it's good to talk to your realtor about uh, that's, a, that's a resource for you uh, in terms of someone who will understand the flooding profile of a particular home and then your then your insurance agent um i you know, for for any new property i would encourage everyone to get a quote for flood insurance uh and that really will drive a conversation about just how risky uh your property is do you mean everybody around the nation or everybody in our area because we're flood prone i'd love to learn more about that uh we really recommend everybody around the nation so what we found is over about a 25 year period uh which is a little less than a standard 30 year mortgage 99% of counties in America experience a flood, uh, flooding event. And so flooding is much, much more widespread that, than any of us give it, give it credit for. Uh, and, you know, that purchasing decision is really a good time to learn about the home uh, you're considering purchasing and to at least understand, even if you choose not to buy the policy, understanding uh, the, way, uh, the way the insurance industry sees your risk, I think is an important uh, an important fact to have. And then you can start thinking about whether you purchase a policy or not. What can you do to make your home less risky? That's interesting that you say 99% of counties experienced a flood event and yet flood insurance is not included on home insurance. Can you see why people get frustrated with, I know you're not an insurance broker, but can you see why? Yeah, but that's why it's too frustrated. expensive for the insurance companies. They can't afford it. Uh, I guess so. But yeah, then it's why it's, it's why the National Flood Insurance Program was created. We're a little bit over 50 years old. And, and in addition to uh, some, some lack of standardization across the country when it comes to managing the floodplain and mapping the floodplain, one of the main reasons that the program was established is because the, the, the price associated with flood insurance uh, was, was high. Um, and so the, the idea that you would come in, you would have a program that, uh, you know, if, if the community agrees to join the NFIP, uh, they agree to those minimum standards that we set that will sell to anybody in that community. Uh, so it really was uh, established because of an affordability problem, but also because of an availability problem. But it, it is expensive. And, and I would also say as the, as the climate changes, as we're getting these unpredictable uh, weather scenarios, we're just seeing more and more flooding. Uh, and, uh, you know, in terms of it being an understood risk, it's really a time that we're trying to get out in front of people and talk them through what the true risk really is. Well, now we're starting to see private insurance companies 
not even offer insurance in certain areas because of climate change. I'm curious to know how long the feds can afford to offer it because this gets, I mean, somebody pays. And uh, in in FEMA's case, of course, it ends up being taxpayers. Are you going to be able to continue to insure these properties? Or does there come a point where you have to say, hey, we'll just buy you out because it's cheaper? Well, uh, mitigation, uh, or, um, and that can be both a buyout uh, or the elevation of a home, is is critically important. Um, you know, it, it, FEMA we view that just as important, if not more important, than the than the insurance we offer. What we've seen in the past several years is historic investments uh, in mitigating homes, um, and so going through the you know the FEMA grant process, uh, working through your community, getting homes elevated, getting getting buyouts done. That's a critical piece because we have to reduce the risk. We can't just keep insuring to the same risk that we've always had. Uh, in terms of, of our program, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we have a law requiring us to be around and to and to offer the insurance that we offer. But it's a legitimate question that you raised. Of course, we're back, backed by the taxpayer. Uh, the primary way uh, that we pay for things uh, is through charging policyholder premium, uh, and we do our very best to co- to collect enough premium to pay all the claims that we have. But just a little bit of research will show you that our program is in debt, and so uh, you know we're in need of some new ideas and of some reform in our program, uh, and certainly uh, through some legislative proposals that that we've sent to Congress, hope uh, that the program can can be uh, transformed into something that can be around for for many, many more decades. We're hearing from Jeff Jackson, who runs the FEMA flood insurance program. And aside from purchasing homeowners insurance and flood insurance as a way to get ready, what else can you do to protect yourself and your home? You can begin fairly simply and uh, make sure that you have a plan uh, to to protect your documents and your your valuables, uh, whether it's moving valuables to a higher floor uh, when when there seems to be some rainfall on the way. One very important thing is keeping uh, your important documents, your birth certificates, passports, those types of things in a floodproof bag, which you can purchase just about anywhere online these days. So it, it begins there. It kind of moves through some of the things that we've talked about, which is understanding your home's flood risk. Uh, purchasing flood insurance, uh, and then there are, are valuable flood mitigation measures you can take. It's awfully expensive to elevate a house. Uh, uh, FEMA many times can can help through FEMA grant programs with that. But uh, you know, ha- having having a contractor out to to look at the drainage on your property is something uh, that you can do, and there there are improvements that you can make. And it's really a, about uh, it's about awareness, but then learning about the things that you can do uh, to put yourself at the lowest risk you can possibly have. Now, how far does FEMA go in in, uh, helping pay for improvements? Are you allowed to, uh, uh, like, do a survey of the land and they say, okay, here's how you can prevent the next mudslide and the government will pay for it? Yeah, there are there are grant programs out there available. Uh, uh, we don't uh, directly dispense that money. It's worked through the state and through the community, and and uh, they each state and each community sets their priorities uh, in terms of funding. But we do have funds available for anything from from uh, you know you you got uh, anything from a seawall uh, you know which is truly a community asset. Uh, to to individual home mitigation uh, projects, so every every community has a uh, a floodplain management office, and that's a good place to start to learn about kind of how it works within within your community. Uh, but but we do offer those options uh, in, in addition to insurance. Uh, you know, it's 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 um, 
it, it's hard work, but in many times it can make the difference between it being feasible for someone to remain in a home and, and just simply not wanting to go through flood loss after flood loss. So it, it's an important part of the process that we offer. FEMA Insurance Administrator, Jeff Jackson. Now for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. The phrase rocking the boat usually implies someone is causing trouble by pushing the limits. But to some students in New York, it's about pushing through the waves of life. Here's CBS's Jerika Duncan. The adrenaline pump you get out of it is like incredible. There we go. 17-year-old Victoria Murillo sails along the Bronx River with competence and ease. I've seen people come out here and they're like, oh my God, this is like really scary, especially. Like that right yeah. there. <laughs> I was very shy before rocking the boat. And the main thing I apply now is communication, like being assertive and like letting people know that I'm here and that I have a voice. You adjust your cut to that angle. Then it should butt in correctly. She's one of 900 students who have joined rocking the boat. It's a nonprofit organization teaching middle and high schoolers how to build boats, sail them, you got it. and the importance of protecting the water quality of the river. Why do you have to replace the whole thing? Adam Green founded the program 25 years ago. I started this as a volunteer project when I was in college, and so this is still my first job out of college. It's changed a whole lot. It's located in one of New York City's poorest neighborhoods in the Bronx, which is on purpose, says Green, who always envisioned working with underserved youth. Where does that come from? Uh, in me, I guess it comes from my parents. I was very fortunate to have parents who were always focused on equity, on trying to allow everybody to have opportunities. 33-year-old Juan Pablo is the director of sailing. What is your hope for these children that you're interacting with on a regular basis? We want kids to come through here and learn about themselves and what they want to do in the future, set up goals for the future. Mm -hmm. So our hope for them is to be able to become better people. Sailing and environmental education and boat building are just a mechanism to get them there. Okay, ready to tack? All right, ready. Students like Victoria Murillo are headed in the right direction. That is Jerika Duncan reporting. And joining us from the Jean Ursula Show, here she is, Ursula Reutzen. Good morning. So, you're going to talk about the Seattle City Council today? Well, yes. I was asked if I would talk about the newly appointed council member, Tanya Wu, mm-hmm. who also ran this last time around and was narrowly defeated by uh, Tammy Morales. So, it'll be interesting because now she will be uh, on the same council body as the person that she just lost to. But she was, I think, for the most part, the the favorite all along in terms of this open seat. She's going to have to run again in November, and she already says that she plans to do so. But um, she is someone who really came onto the scene. She's a kind of a relatively political newcomer, um, but she made her a name for herself or became much more familiar to everybody uh, because she was one of the activists who stopped that uh, homeless encampment in the Seattle uh, Chinatown uh, International okay, District. So, so she'd probably be allied with uh, other newcomers like uh, Bob Kettle and Sarah Nelson. Yes, uh, in, in fact, uh, they basically were uh, the ones who there was. A, it was a five member vote uh, in favor of her. So mm-hmm. they she made it through the first round and she was picked and she had the majority. So uh, yes, she's gonna, I, she's gonna, she's going to work really well with the council. What I'm most excited about. 
you guys, is that so for so long we have talked about the dysfunction at City Hall. And it has just been, you know, a lot of gr- political grandstanding and uh, just people with individual agendas, a, individual. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and and just so much infighting. Um, and I'm just looking forward to a more collaborative approach, which is what I've heard over and over and over again from all of them. Right. Yes. They all are vowing like working yes. together, unity, listening to the public. Yes. I did have concerns, though, after listening to Kate Stone's coverage of leading up to this vote. Yes. That it sounded like the public was in favor of some of the other members, but the council already had an idea of who they wanted. It didn't sound like the public was listened to. And I, I know Sarah Nelson said this is an appointment, not an election. Exactly. for public comment if you're not going to have that influence your vote? Well, I don't know that she necessarily didn't have uh, the public's uh, support. Yes. I think that there were just some other members, especially the, the Seattle school board member who came up kind of toward the, the end and she had Labor's vote. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, uh, Tanya Wu has the business community's support. So uh, they, people might think if you're going to criticize the, the current council, you might say, well, it's really heavy on business. Um, and uh, so we're going to get uh, more of that versus what has been a, an extremely progressive council of the years past. I'm just looking for some kind of moderation. I'm looking for um, people who want to work together and not make headlines. Well, she's got to run individual. again in 10 months. Anyway, yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. if she does a horrible job. What do you think they're going to tackle first? Um, I, well, they have all said homelessness, mm. yeah. public safety. Um, what I like about Tanya Wu, another thing, is that she has talked about um, her belief, because we've got a, we're talking about the mayor just announced that there's going to be, what, a quarter billion dollar yeah. budget deficit hiring next freeze. year. Yeah. Uh, they've got a hiring freeze. Uh, and so the question for me is someone who lives in the city of Seattle is like, OK, are you going to try to make that up by making more taxes? I mean, creating mm-hmm. more taxes and um I, I think she's one who has said i would look at cuts before i would look at new revenue what are they going to do to pursue uh the housing issue is there has there been any meaningful uh change in zoning for example well that's one of the things um uh, again um whether all Areas of the city should be open for multiple. I mean, that's kind of been the direction for yeah. multiple unit housing uh, versus trying to keep things strictly residential. And uh, I think that this council has a kind of more balanced approach on that. Um, so I, I'm I'm not sure how well, how I mean, it's going to shake out, but uh, I think that. Um, I don't believe, at least, uh, just based on, and I have, I'll be honest, Do you want I haven't looked at in your neighborhood? it. Um, in certain parts, the main main streets, yeah. where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my cul de sac, no. Yeah. I, uh, what, what I'm seeing right now is where I'm seeing uh, single home residential areas where now uh, what used to be one home is now four units. Yeah. Uh, that's happening a lot. And you don't have the, the parking available. Um, the the property, the houses are <laughs> filling the entire Lawn. piece of property. Well, it's yeah. called yeah. density. Here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm in favor of more density, uh-huh. uh, but where it makes sense. There's Leroy team with G at 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. I thought we'd get an update on Seattle's homelessness situation, especially considering that uh, in the month of January, we had five deaths from hypothermia just in the month of January so far. 
uh, mostly older, unsheltered people uh, outdoors. Andrea Suarez is here from We Heart Seattle. Uh, We've talked before, and I wanted to call you in because I understand you're actually being listened to by the city council now. Uh, Before we get to that, explain to people what, what your role is. What does We Heart Seattle do? We are a grassroots movement uh, that organizes trash picks as a form of uh, direct action strategy to, um, you know, kind of uncover what's working and what's not maybe working from a policy perspective in the city of Seattle. Now, trash picks, what does that mean? Uh, We organized over 300 uh, litter picks so far in the last couple of years, uh, removing more than a million pounds of trash. Uh, Unfortunately, 12 deceased bodies, including cleaning up their camps after the examiners uh, removed the bodies. So it really um, uncovers a lot of uh, truth to be told and why, you know, I'm glad I'm here today to talk a little bit about that. Yes. And you're very passionate about this. You're convinced that we are screwing this up and are (laughs) ignoring the reality of the streets. Yeah, we're enabling uh, addiction. We're enabling people to die outside in unsanctioned camps, on slopes, in RVs, and in honey buckets, in their cars, and in their tents. Um, Leaving people where they're at, meeting them where they're at isn't working. And we need to have the courage of, we need the new council and policymakers to have courage to change what we're doing. The approach is failing. And your in your latest email to me, you said that we are enabling drug dens. Explain that. Well, when we go in and visit our clients, we now have helped over 200 people off the streets into housing, uh, navigate employment and drug and recovery services for them um, as part of our model. And what we see inside is, is worse than often what we see outside. And these pr- permanent supportive low barrier housing projects are giving people more harm reduction, more needles, more foil, um, just enabling them to get by another day. I say it's nothing short of treating people like a hospice patient until they die. Mm. And you, when you talk about the low, ba- are these the tiny villages? Can you name where this issue is happening? The 24-7 enhanced shelters, um, yeah, sometimes tiny house villages, hotel rooms, mm. uh, fully furnished apartments that are provided to people. I've been inside and seen uh, the most gruesome, you know, uh, squalid conditions, mold, maggots, rats, roaches, um, you know, plumbing not working, heating not working. I, I really does make me wonder where, where the money is going. And I know it's hard work and I don't want to be disparaging for people who've been doing this for their whole career. But we have to call it out and flag it again and again. I know I'm not the first person to say, hey, something's not working here, um, you know, the federal agencies are subsidizing Criminal, it's like the more criminal behavior you have, the more, um, you, you know, high acuity gets the most benefits. And to a degree, we, we need to do that. But there needs to be and 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 out. And what I heard in the headline in San Francisco just yesterday is that Mayor Breed is now um, uh, deploying a policy that homeless must pass a UA or be in a drug and alcohol program to get mm-hmm. services. And that is the opposite of what we do is you have to do nothing for something. And I think we have to start. So you, you basically condemn this whole housing first model. Uh, I, as it is being witnessed today um, and today, I would say I do condemn it. It's not a housing first, um, housing first and housing first with accountability, dis- discipline and structure. Like You need to eventually reach a path of self-sufficiency. What's the out and all to I mean, I saw my client. He looked worse indoors than he did outdoors and there were needles all over his room trying to cohabitate with other people that have a 
variety of complex disabilities. It's just the human suffering is is barbaric. You call them your clients, so you must have constant contact with these individuals. Uh, what do they say to you? They say Seattle wants me to be a junkie. Really? Mm-hmm. Direct quote. I can't get out. There's no path out. I'm enabled to... It, we make it easy to get high and hard to get clean. And thankfully, council member President Sarah Nelson is working on redistributing the budget dollars to subsidize clean and sober living or at least housing communities, hotels and uh, villages that are set up for people who are discharged from drug and alcohol detox. For example, right now they go right back into the cesspool that they're trying to get out of. Of course they would use again. So when Mm. I get a report, numbers from the city or the county saying, you know, we contacted a thousand individuals in this last month and 72% accepted housing. They're going to what you say they're going to, which is squalor. Yes. So we're not getting the full picture of those. It sounds good, right? You hear that. Yeah. Well, 70, no, a, 90% report, said, yeah. yeah, I'll have some housing. I'll have some shelter. But what you're saying on the ground is the shelter spaces, the motels turned into shelter spaces that we are talking about, that those are drug dens now. Those are, are part of the, the housing that's being offered. Yes. Um, what I would like to see in, you know, I'm actually talking to a developer about this now is turning the hotels into hospital rooms and giving, you know, the, <laughs> giving wow. people a place to detox, to stay, to live with nurse practitioners, a path out and maybe just a little out of town, maybe a little off of third Avenue away from the dealers. Right. I watched a woman completely convulse and nearly die right on first and bell the other night in plain sight, people walking by her and the dealers all around her, you know, enabling people to die. They're murdering our children, our family out there. It's just, I don't understand the permissive ecosystem. Hopefully things are going to change. Uh, Bob Kettle being a part of the uh, mm-hmm. public safety committee, uh, President Nelson um, promising redistribution of dollars to provide friction-free access to drug and alcohol detox. Housing First doesn't allow any of the funding to go towards halfway houses. Programs like Battlefield Addiction that you don't hear about in the headlines because they require you to be clean and sober yeah. to come into the pro- to program. We have a whole new city council, well, almost a whole new city yeah. council. Seven of the nine positions are going to be new individuals. Do you have hope this council can make it work? I have so much hope. That's um, good to hear that you have hope. Yep. In <laughs> fact, right now at city council, they're um, listening to interviews of people for the at-large position eight. I wasn't mm-hmm. able to be there because I'm here, but um, I trust that our council will appoint somebody that's a moderate, that's going to apply common sense and humane uh policy to help save these folks' lives. So who still believes in the Housing First model? Well, I think, you know, I look at the voter turnout being historically low. I think people who might have adopted that are just afraid to vote. They don't know who to vote for. Everyone feels disenfranchised because it's not popular to counter that. Um, Even people working in the housing projects look at my counterpart, Tim and I, and they're like, Andrea, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but thank you for bringing us people who are housing ready. Mm-hmm. housing contingent and go through your detox beyond suboxone or methadone first. And you provide services to people like this? Uh, yeah, we connect and- people to services all over the state, all over the nation. If they want to go back to Nebraska to be with mom and go to detox there, we connect people to family. That's our favorite thing to do. Andrea Suarez, We Heart Seattle. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. And that's Mickey time. Here's Mickey Gomez, as well as a well-known millennial 
David Burbank, and we're looking for ways to uh, get you to stop using your phone, which I think is uh, basically a, a futile mission. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> I mean, Meta is in the is now in the business of uh, of trying to get people not to use it as much. See, this doesn't make any sense. Why would a no, company really want to do that? So it, it it starts with the teens, Dave. It, it really mm-hmm. does. So the average teen spends about five hours a day a day on social media. Yes, mm-hmm. and Meta, Facebook's parent group hopes to cut that number with instagram's nightly nudge so the nudge oh i have the nudge you have the nudge. yeah it's an automatic notification that's going to appear after 10 minutes of doom scrolling on instagram reels or in direct messaging so it's supposed to encourage kids to get off the platform and go to sleep which i thought that was my job you know, JJ, get off your phone, go to sleep. But they so can't sleep. hear you when they're looking at their no, phones. This is very true. It's like, please stop using our product. Is that right. what they're saying? Right. Well, no, yeah, kind of. we're getting in trouble because kids are addicted. Well, we're using it, but we're using it too much. And yeah. they want us to have balance, right? Um, uh-huh. So it's supposed to encourage kids, like I said, to get off the platform, go to sleep. This, as 33 attorneys general are suing Meta for allegedly targeting children with these addictive features. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to a local social worker. His name is Nick Norman. And he says, it's easy to become addicted to social media. Especially now that we have things like Reels and TikTok where you just continue to swipe and swipe and swipe, that hijacking of the dopamine system can get us into a compulsive cycle. He says the nightly nudge can quote-unquote, potentially break that cycle, even if just for a moment. And so just a breaking of that cycle temporarily can pull us out just a little bit and give us a little more conscious choice in that moment. Can we flesh out the dopamine a little bit more just mm-hmm. to, to describe it for people? I don't know yeah. if you go into this with him at all, but it basically, it the social media is training your brain to receive dopamine through mm-hmm. the laughs and the smiles and the likes and the good feelings you're getting from those targeted, mm-hmm. led by algorithm, reels, and content. Because we can't depend on that dopamine in today's world, right? right. We're we all have... feeling doom and gloom, but where we can depend on that mm-hmm. hit of dopamine is right in front of our faces. That's so right. So it hijacks, mm-hmm. you know, instead of us having to work for that dopamine, we just go, oh, my phone will make me happy. Right. And I have curated my page, my Facebook page, my, uh, my TikTok page, my For You page, my reels to only play kittens, Puppies, yeah. whales. Why wouldn't because, you want to look at that? Because I want to look at that at night. I don't. Yeah. I don't want all the other stuff. Well, anyway. Well, it's something that Norman says that is very true. Social media is very different today than the days of MySpace. These days, you know, with the rise of the influencer as a career, there are folks with with large budgets behind them that they build very curated lifestyles, very curated um, images and presences online. And Norman says curated lifestyles create this comparison effect, which can be detrimental to a kid or a teen's mental health. And it it creates a bit of a false understanding of what the reality the rest of us are living really is. He says teens are susceptible to that comparison. And so, you know, too much of that comparison of, oh, they're prettier than I am. They're more wealthy than I am. They're doing more interesting things than I am. They're more successful. You know, it whittles down our our self-esteem. And he says it can lead to anxiety and depression. With social media, especially with the development of things like the infinite scroll, you can just keep going and going and going. And these apps are built to hook our attention and keep us there. So what can parents do? You know, just understand that the nightly nudge is just a notification. And even though it can break that cycle of the doom scrolling, it might not prevent it 
might not prevent a teen from stopping. He says that parents should pay attention to how much time kids are spending on their phones. Also know what apps they're using. And boundaries and time limits are very essential. Can't you program the phone to shut off a certain website after five minutes? Like when, you know, the presence detector on your TV screen, if you're sitting there too still, the TV just shuts off. Hmm. And half the time I'm on the couch asleep anyway, so I don't know. Does your TV do? My TV doesn't do that. We we put a timer on our television, so after an hour... Because I like to sleep with the TV off. Andrea likes to fall asleep with the TV on. So we made a, you know, we're like, okay, let's meet in the middle. We put a timer on it and it shuts off. But yes, you can have parental controls over your kid's cell phone. First, the parents have to control themselves, myself included. I mean, I am. Do you doom scroll? Oh, all the time, yeah. And what just you, last night, watching? June was like hanging on my shoulder as I was trying to communicate with some friends. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? What are you typing? What are you doing? And it, it, it's hard for parents. I'll just speak for parents. It's hard because so much of our lives, communicating with family, communicating with coworkers, friends, getting news, your bank statement, everything is on your phone. Mm-hmm. And so your kids see you on your phone all the time, even if you're not doom scrolling and doing legitimate work. So it's difficult to lead by example when yeah. we're always on our phone. They see it and they go, well... There's only one answer. To do what the broadcast stations used to do at midnight, they turned off the transmitter. So, Internet, you have hours. Internet stops at 11 o'clock, and the whole thing goes dark. I want to live in Dave Ross's world. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember back in the day at midnight, all of a sudden... Dun, 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 dun. was patriotic. Yep, Star Spangled Banner. Got a test pattern. You could uh, set the color balance, and there you go. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mickey. (laughs) Doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast, and you'll never miss the show.